take a moment and just stop and pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the way that you have consumed our lives and for the way that you have transformed us from the inside out. God, that is our prayer this morning, that you would change us at the core of our being, at the core of who we are, that you would transform us this morning. It's in the name of Jesus we pray all these things. Amen. Thank you, Robert and choir. That was just an incredible time of worship. I have to confess to you this morning that I am not that much of a good person, and I'll tell you why. Uh, Every Monday and Tuesdays, we have our ministers meeting and our staff meetings, and I'm notorious, uh, usually actually during the prayer request time, which I feel really bad about this, for calling people to see if their phones are on silent. Now, you're going to think I'm a horrible person, but just about every week, I call somebody, you know, during the meeting, and inevitably their phone is always on loud. And so everybody finds out who it is, and of course everybody looks at me and they realize that I'm the one that did it. So I was told this week that if I had my phone in my pocket, that I was going to get a number of calls from a number of different staff members to see if my phone was on loud. So I left my phone on the pew and I turned it off. So whoever's thinking about calling me, I don't have it with me this morning. But uh, I am excited to be here. It's been about... It's been about seven months, I guess, since the last time I preached, and this morning we are going to be looking at teaching to transform. As Robert mentioned earlier, these are the five core values, the five core competencies that we actually as a staff developed about a year ago in a leadership retreat that we took. We developed these five principles, and we really believe that if we filter our decision-making through these five core competencies, it's going to make us a better church, it's going to make us a better staff, And we're going to go about doing ministry in a much healthier way. If we make all of our decisions and we filter them through these five core competencies, they're right behind me on the left. I actually created both of these designs back here. No, I didn't really. But somebody much more creative than I did created these. Today we're on the third one, Teach to Transform. So we're going to be looking this morning at the same passage of Scripture that we've been looking at these last two weeks and we're teaching to transform this morning. So, we're going to continue on in the tradition of reading this passage of Scripture together. Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And I'm going to be looking at the screens just like you are. So let's read it aloud together this morning as we think about how can we teach to transform. Here we go. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. So many gathered that there was no room left not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus, and after digging through it, lowered the mat the paralyzed man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, "'Son, your sins are forgiven.'" Now some teachers of the law were sitting there, thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts, and he said to them, why are you thinking these things? It's kind of hard to follow my inflection, isn't it? It's challenging. Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, Take your mat and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. 
He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This morning we're looking at teaching to transform. I want you to stop for a moment and think about the one or two most influential teachers you ever had in your life. It might have been an elementary school teacher, it might have been a college professor, it might have been a graduate professor. You have influential teachers in your life. Now, as I was thinking about this this week, I had to decide which ones I wanted to mention in front of you. Now, both of these teachers are back in Alabama, so they're not going to know that I'm talking about them. The first one is my 10th grade geometry teacher. His name was Mr. Harden. I didn't learn anything in geometry that year about triangles or shapes or any of that stuff. I don't remember any of that. The only thing I remember about this man is that before we took every quiz and before we took every test, he said the exact same thing before we actually took it. He would pass out the paper, he'd lick it, pass it out, lick it, pass it out, which is disgusting, by the way. If you lick your piece of paper before you hand it to the students, I would advise against that. That's just nasty. But Mr. Harden would say this every time. He'd pass it out and he'd say, I would wish you luck, but we all know it's not about luck, it's about preparation. He said that before every quiz and every test that we ever took. By the end of the year, the entire class was rolling their eyes, sighing, saying, oh my gosh, when is he going to quit saying this? But that you know, every test and quiz that I've taken since 10th grade, when I get my test, what do I repeat in my mind? It's not about luck, it's about preparation. Every single time. Now, he was a good man, and he was a good teacher, but that's really the only thing I remember about him. But that, that saying did stick with me. It was influential in my life. As cheesy as it is, it has stuck with me. And I have another professor that I had in college. His name was Dr. Harris. He was one of my communication professors, which, you know, communication is the degree that you get if you don't know really what you want to do with your life or if you don't really have an idea what you want to do. So, you know, I'm, no offense if you're a communication major, but the reality is, you know, it's not that hard. Uh, so I had fun in college. It wasn't that hard, but it was fun. And so my professor, he, he was a consultant for major organizations. He was a consultant for NASA. He had his own house in Belize. He was well-known. He wrote the textbook of our class. He would walk in every day with a textbook, and he would sit down, and he would flip through the pages from the chapter we were assigned to read that day, and then he would shut the book, and then for an hour and 15 minutes, he would tell stories the entire class period. But this man had a knack for every story that he told, he could somehow relate it to the concepts that we were supposed to be learning. It was unbelievable. The man was brilliant. He had a way of using analogies and stories to actually explain the concepts that we were supposed to be reading in our books because he knew we weren't actually reading them. He was unbelievable. And I will never forget those two men. And we all have influential teachers in our life, people that have made a difference. It's not always about the material that they teach you. Sometimes it's about the character that they display as they teach. Sometimes it's about the man or woman that they are behind when they're not actually teaching. So this morning we're going to be looking at the mastermind teacher. Now, Pastor David said last week that Jesus is the most influential person that's ever walked the face of this earth, and that is 100% true. Now, we may be biased, but I firmly believe that Jesus is the most influential person that ever walked the face of this earth. He is the mastermind teacher this morning. And we as a church, we as a church staff, you as a member of this church, we need to be teaching to transform weekly. And I want you to know that we teach to transform this morning because we believe that people are desperate for truth in their life. People are desperate for truth. It says in verse 1 that many gathered. There was a report going around the community. They had heard that Jesus had returned home. 
Now, this is a first century context, but if this were the 21st century, they would have their phones out, updating their Facebook statuses. They would be tweeting. They would be text messaging their friends. They would be saying, Jesus had returned home. Now, all they did to do this was word of mouth in that day and age, but kind of put it in our context here. It would be a big deal. There would be people updating their Facebooks, texting their friends. Everybody was there. The text tells us that there were so many people there that they could not even all get to the door. They wanted to hear what Jesus had to say. They wanted to know, how can he make a difference in my life? I need you to understand this morning that if we truly believe that Jesus Christ has the power to transform lives, then we have to believe that he's genuinely going to change people's lives. If we don't genuinely believe this morning that Jesus has the power to transform lives, then we've missed the boat. You see, it's not enough to say that Jesus was a wise person It's not enough to say that he has good things to say about this topic or that topic or that he can help you be a better moral and ethical person. That is not enough. We can get that on the shelves at Barnes & Noble, okay? There's a whole section devoted to self-help. If all we think Jesus can do is make us morally better and make us wiser, we're missing his message here. It's not necessarily all about just being a good person, is it? No, and Mark tells us that Jesus is out there and he's preaching the word to them, the logos. I have to use a Greek word, so Dr. Stevens is in here, all right? The logos, he's preaching the word to them. Now, what was this word? I don't think it was necessarily about being a wise person. I don't think it was about being morally acceptable. I think it was the gospel. I think it was kingdom of God. I think that's what Jesus was talking about in this passage. He's telling them and he's preaching the word to them. Jesus has the ability this morning to transform lives. People are desperate for truth. Now, we live in a very cynical world today, don't we? People tend to believe that oftentimes the things that we believe are out of date with society, things of that nature. I'm here to tell you that people are desperate for truth. If we don't believe that fundamental saying this morning, if we don't believe that people are desperate for truth, then we're wasting our time. I would ask you this morning, why are you here in this place if you don't believe that Jesus can transform lives, if you don't believe that people are desperate for truth? Look, the reality is we have two days in our weekends, don't we? We have Saturday and we have Sunday. Now, people that don't devote time at some point in the weekend to come and gather together, to come worship, they actually have two full weekend days to do the things that they need to do. Now, for us, we sacrifice at least the period from 9.30 to 12 on Sunday morning. And some of us even, we have youth programming at night. We have life groups that meet throughout the week. If it's not important to us, then why are we spending so much time up here? Look, there's about 15 NFL games slated today on the television. We could be getting our snacks ready right now. If you're a golfer, you could be at home playing golf right now. You could be getting your laundry done. You could be going to get groceries or since we live in New Orleans, going to make groceries, okay? You could be doing so much more, many things with your time. But we're all here for one reason. It's because we value what Jesus says about himself in this word. You see, those of us that don't have our two full weekend days, we lose out on many of the activities that those that have both of their days actually get. You know, I I can think about growing up and really only having Saturday is the day that you have to cram in both relaxation and fun and getting ready for the next work week, right? Because on Sunday, we're up here. 
And so Sunday is the day that a lot of people actually spend doing their groceries, doing their laundry. Well, we cut into that time by coming up here. And I hope we're not just coming up here for tradition's sake. I hope we actually believe that people are desperate for truth. And the truth that changes people is the truth of Jesus that we find in Scripture. People are absolutely desperate for truth. You have to believe that this morning. You have to believe that you're here because you know when you go back out into the world at the end of today that there are people all around you in your life desperate for truth. And the Holy Spirit is going to reveal them to you. But you have to have that mindset that you're ready at all times for when somebody's going to come and approach you and say, what do you know about this Jesus guy? I can tell there's something different about you. According to the Mayan calendar, how many of you have been keeping up with the Mayan calendar, right? We have less than three months to live. December 21st, 2012, that's the end. So stock up on your water, stock up on your groceries, whatever your favorite snack is. Mine's fudge rounds. I love the little, uh, little Debbie fudge rounds. Those are absolutely the best. I eat about four of those a day. Two, two with my lunch and two right before I go to bed. But you need to stock up on your groceries because December 21st, 2012 is the end. If you actually believe this, yet again, fallacious attempt to declare the end of the world, then you better start living your life with a sense of urgency. Now, I don't think any of us in this room actually believe that December 21st, 2012 is going to be the end of the world because Jesus, I believe, clearly teaches that we don't know the time or the date. And I highly doubt that he got together with the Mayans and said, I want you to be the ones that get it right. But he might have been. So if there is some conspiracy theory out there, you need to be ready. But I'm here to tell you this morning, whether or not the world ends on December 21st, 2012, I believe the one thing that we can take from this foolish attempt to predict the end of the world is that we need to be living our lives with a sense of urgency. You are only, and this is so cliche, but it's so true, you're only guaranteed right now in this moment. Live each day as if it's your last. And you hear these kind of things, we hear them nonstop, but do we really take them to heart? We have to live each moment as if it's our last. And if that's the case, then we need to be out in our community sharing the gospel with those that we know. Because we really don't know when it's coming. We don't know when Jesus is going to return. People are desperate for truth, and we have to believe that this morning. I want you to understand also, as we look at this passage, that there are always going to be scribes in your life. There are always going to be scribes in your life. Now, in this particular passage, the scribes are upset with Jesus for two particular reasons. One is actually explicitly stated in the text, and then there's actually another reason that's not really there that we're going to kind of hash out. But first off, why are the scribes upset? Well, they're upset because he's blaspheming. He's saying he has the power to forgive sins. Now, that's not going to run well with the scribes. They're upset about that. But, you know, there's another aspect to why they're upset here. Jesus is actually a threat to their authority, to their power, to their status. The paralytic man carried by his four friends, he should have been coming to the scribes, right? They're the ones with the religious education. They're the ones with the training. They're the ones with more status in society. But who does the paralytic go to? He goes to Jesus. He goes to the man with less education, the man from a village that's not very well to do in Galilee, and they go to him. Now, this upsets the scribes. Of course, if you have spent your whole life being steeped in religious tradition and then some guy just shows up and somebody's automatically going to him, you would be upset too. So we ourselves are not that far removed from the scribes here. Let's not completely dismiss the scribes because we get jealous too. If we feel like we're an expert on something and people go to someone else, we don't really like that. 
So let's not completely dismiss the scribes here. But they're angry with Jesus, not only because he's forgiving sins, but because Jesus had less status, less education, and they still go to Jesus. That's kind of not the way it should have been. I'm here to tell you this morning that you are going to have scribes in your life as followers of Jesus who verbalize and memorize and profess the teachings that he gives us in Scripture this morning. You're going to have scribes. You're going to have people in your life telling you that the claims that you're professing, the things that you believe, are out of date with society, that they're not contemporary enough, that how can you say you are the only one that knows how to get to heaven? How can you say that Jesus is the only way? That's so arrogant of you. How can you say that? There are going to be people chirping this stuff in your ear. They're going to be chirping this stuff. You're always going to have scribes in your life. You're always going to have people telling you that what you believe is wrong, that it's out of date, that you need to catch up with what the rest of the world thinks. You're always going to have those scribes in your life. But I challenge you this morning to stay the course. Stay the course. Remember the moments in your life when Jesus actually transformed you. As we sung earlier, as Jesus transformed you from the inside out, as he made a difference in your life, when the persecution, when the ridicule, when people tell you that what you believe is foolish, we have to cling to the moments in our life where Jesus transformed us. Because that's all we have at the end of the day. Jesus transforming us from the inside out. There are always going to be scribes in your life. I want you to know this morning that Jesus is the most influential and radical teacher that ever walked the face of the earth. Hands down. Nobody is better than Jesus. He is the most influential and radical teacher that this world has ever seen. You see, in the Old Testament, especially, and in this passage, it's brought back in here, there seems to be a link between one's physical condition and their spiritual condition. Now, we kind of do this today as well, even though we don't like to admit it, but if we know that somebody's not living right and, you know, maybe they get cancer or maybe something happens tragic to them, even in the back of our mind, even though we don't want to admit it, we often think, well, if they'd have been living their life right, that wouldn't have happened to them, all right? This is no different than an ancient society. One's physical condition is linked to one's spiritual condition. In fact, if you look at the examples of healing throughout the Old Testament, what you'll find is that sometimes when you read the actual language, it's hard to determine whether or not he's actually referring to the, the physical healing or the spiritual healing. Now, there's no doubt in this passage that the paralytic is coming to Jesus for healing. But, but which healing was it? Was it for his disability or was it for spiritual healing? It's a good question to ask. Did he strictly come for physical healing or did in the back of his mind, did he know that, you know what, I think Jesus can probably transform me spiritually as well. I have a feeling that his friends knew that Jesus could do more than just heal him of his disability. So keep that in mind as we read through this passage and as we study it, that there is always a link between one's physical condition and one's spiritual condition in the ancient world. They went hand in hand. That's just how they thought. Now what does Jesus do in this passage? Well, he's been challenged by the scribes. They have challenged him. They challenged his honor. They have told him, 
They've been thinking in their hearts. They've been dialoguing in their hearts. It says that they were actually judging Jesus. You know, they were kind of thinking up all these things in their heart about what he was doing. And they said, who can forgive sins but God? Now, they're thinking this stuff in their heart, but, you know, they kind of forget that Jesus can read our minds. You know, he, he knows what we're thinking. He knows what, what's in our hearts. And so while they were dialoguing about this internally, Jesus was already well aware that he was going to have to respond to what they were saying. He was being challenged. And when you're challenged, you have two options. You can either face the challenge head on or you can walk away. And if you walk away, not only are you going to lose influence with those around you, you prove that the person that challenged you is right. There's a little bit of social status going on here. The scribes have challenged Jesus. He has to respond. He has no choice. They've said that, who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus has to respond to that. He has to prove to them that he has the power to do that. Now, I want you to know that as we get into this, the meat of this passage where Jesus actually calls out the scribes and asks them a question, that he uses an unbelievable rhetorical move here that's just brilliant. And this is why we say that Jesus is the most influential and radical teacher that ever lived. The way he handled this situation is absolutely brilliant. Now, what does he do? The scribes say, no one can forgive sins but God alone. What did he do at the beginning of the passage? He already forgave the man of his sins. He did that early on. He did that, I think, in verse 5 or 6, somewhere in there. He forgave the man of his sins. But he tells the scribes this, so that you know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, I tell you, rise up, take your mat, and go home. Now, what would we expect Jesus to have said there? In front of the scribes, in front of everybody there watching, he says, so that the man, so that you know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, I would expect Jesus to have said, your sins are forgiven. But he doesn't. He tells the man to rise, take up his bed, and go home. He asks the scribes, which one is easier for me to do? Do I forgive the man of his sins, or do I tell him to rise, take up his mat, and go home? This is the question that he poses to the scribes. Now, you need to understand that for the scribes, if Jesus just tells the man, your sins are forgiven, how, how do we know, right? That would have invited skepticism among the scribes. If they would have simply said, if Jesus would have simply said, your sins are forgiven, then the scribes could have had a field day because how do we know that Jesus has forgiven our sins? How are they to know? Jesus could have said, your sins are forgiven, but there's no way of actually measuring in that man's life that Jesus has forgiven their sins. So what does Jesus have to do? He has to do a physical miracle to prove that he can forgive sins. If the more difficult act can be accomplished, then this will prove that Jesus can, in fact, forgive sins. So he says that you will know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, take up your bed, and go home. Now that's impressive. The man gets up and he goes home. He healed the man physically. And the physical act of healing automatically now shows the scribes and those standing around that, hey, if Jesus can make this man get up and walk, which we've never seen before, which we cannot believe, then surely he has to have the power to forgive sins. Do you see what Jesus is doing there? He's turned the tables on the scribes. He's, he's flipped it. They wanted him to say, forgive, forgive him of his sins, forgive him of his sins, because then they could say, well, how can you prove that? How can you prove that? You don't have any way of proving that. So instead, he heals the man, tells him to get up his mat and go home. And by doing that, 
It automatically shows that if he has the power to do this, then he has the power to forgive sins. He, what I would say is, he takes the scribes to school. He schools them. All right? The scribes are the ones with more education. The scribes are the ones with better status, more money. And Jesus schools them. The man with less education, less well-to-do, less money, he lets them have it. And he shows them who's boss. He outfoxed the scribes. You know, we often tend to equate intelligence with one's education. Do we not? Well, if this person has this degree and this person doesn't have this piece of paper, then that must mean automatically that this one's more intelligent, right? And whether we want to admit it or not, we, we tend to think that way. Okay, and I'm not here to say don't go to college. Please don't hear me say that this morning. We all need education in order to get jobs. I get that. But who's the one with more education in this passage? The scribes. Who's the one more well-to-do in this passage? The scribes. But yet, who's the more intelligent one in this passage? That's what I would ask you. Who's more intelligent? Jesus is more intelligent in this passage. There's no doubt that he's more intelligent in this passage. He tricks the scribes. He uses a rhetorical move, and he turns the tables on what they were trying to do to him. Formal education does not always equate to your intelligence. Now, I've been formally educated, and I know lots of people that are much smarter than I am. I'm sure you do too. There are always people that just have this knack for being able to communicate clearly and do things the right way, and there might be college dropouts. Maybe they didn't even go to college, but they're more intelligent than you are, and you sit there and you're frustrated. How is this person smarter than I am? I've been in school my whole life. It's just the way it is sometimes. I give you two examples of this uh, from society that we both are well, we know them well, everybody knows them. The first one is Bill Gates. Now, last week it came out that Bill Gates has now retaken the top spot in Forbes' list of the 400 richest Americans. He has an estimated net worth of $66 billion. Man, wouldn't that be awesome if he was a regular tither to First Baptist New Orleans? Just think of what we could do. It'd be unbelievable. $66 billion, what's 10% of that? Tyler's a math major. $6.6 billion? Is that right? Oh, my goodness. We would all get a huge pay. We might even start paying members for coming if we had that kind of money. This would be unbelievable. Net worth of $66 billion. The most influential and technologically savvy and advanced person, I believe, the world has seen to date with what he's done with computer software and computer technology Harvard dropout. Never finished college. He was a dropout. Mark Zuckerberger. Yeah, we're all familiar with Mark, right? The star behind the movie, The Social Network. Also known as the inventor of Facebook. I guarantee you at least 10% of the population in this room is surfing Facebook on their phones as I speak. So, I know that Mark Zuckerberger is influential in our world. Now, his net worth is $10 billion, and in 2010, he was named Times Person of the Year. Another good fact about Mark Zuckerberger, college dropout. The two, in my opinion, the two most influential, technologically savvy men that we have seen probably in the history of the world, I mean, Facebook is just booming. Everybody has a Facebook. These two men both did not finish college. Now, I'm not saying if you don't finish college, you're going to be worth $70 billion. That's not what I'm saying this morning. But to say that formal education 
and intelligence are tied hand in hand is so far from the truth. Just look at the numbers. Jesus, less formally educated, less status, less respect in the community at the time, defeats the religious elite in this passage. Now that is a teacher that is the most influential and radical teacher that this world has ever seen. I love the way this passage of Scripture finishes. I want you to look with me in verse 12. And he rose immediately, picked up his bed, and he went out before them all, so that that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we will never see anything like this. Boy, that's the truth. We will never see anything like this ever again. The beauty of the teachings of Jesus is that it will never be duplicated. The teachings of Jesus cannot be reproduced. What we have in Scripture is exactly what Jesus told us, and they are the best teachings that we can abide by. They are the best teachings that we can follow. They will never be reproduced in the same way that Jesus did them. Sure, we can teach them in our Sunday school classes, we can teach them to our children, and we should, but they'll never be duplicated the way that he could do it himself. We will never see anything like this ever again. You see, the scribes went away that day, defeated, and the people left amazed. And the people left amazed for two reasons. First, they left and they were amazed because the man was healed of his paralysis. What an incredible miracle. I could not imagine have actually being there and seeing Jesus healing a paralytic man, telling him to get up and walk, and he actually gets up and leaves. Could you imagine the scene? Healings just don't work that way today, do they? It just doesn't happen that way. Jesus was there, said, get up and walk. So the people were absolutely astonished at what they had seen. But do not forget that even though, if you look in your Bible right now at Mark 2, at the top of the chapter, I guarantee you it says, Jesus' healing of the paralytic, or something of that nature. That is not the true miracle in this passage. The true miracle in this passage is that Jesus has the power to forgive sins. I think we should scratch out, Jesus heals the paralytic, and we should put in there, Jesus has the power to forgive sins, because that's the crux of this passage. That's the most important truth in this passage. Healing the paralytic is is unbelievable. It's an incredible miracle. But the most important thing in this passage is that Jesus has power to forgive sin. Do you know how liberating that is this morning to realize that your sin is forgiven? We talk about it weekly. We talk about it daily. We know God has forgiven us of our sins. But the actual feeling, the liberation that we have knowing that God has forgiven us of our sins is absolutely unbelievable. I sat about two months ago at a leadership conference. Many of us here went to the Global Leadership Summit. It's a leadership conference put on by Bill Hybels, his church, Willow Creek Community Church up in Illinois. There were a lot of us that went uh, on staff here. And for two days, we heard from the, the best speakers in the world. Unbelievable conference from secular leaders, Christian leaders. It was a great time. Uh, Two that come to mind are Jim Collins. Almost everybody knows who Jim Collins is. He wrote Good to Great. Just about every student who's ever been in college, if you take a business class, you're going to read Good to Great. Best-selling book. He's taking companies that were making nothing, and now they're making tons of money. Not only is he a great writer, but he was unbelievable to listen to. His ability to communicate. 
was incredible. Another one that was there that was also, I think these were the two most impressive, Jim Collins and then Patrick Lencioni. If you're into business books or things of that nature, you've probably read his books. His most popular one is The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. He's written other books called Death by Meeting, uh, The Four Obsessions of an Extraordinary CEO. He's a consultant. He goes around the world. He consults not only with business organizations, but he consults with churches as well. And these men were unbelievable to listen to, and I left that conference fired up to be a better leader at this church, to be a better leader in my family, to read more on leadership. I wanted to pray more about leadership. I wanted to find more about leadership in Scripture. And I left that conference fired up about being a better leader. But I thought about this over the last couple of months. You know, being a leader, it's great. But teachings of Jesus, if you want to be a good leader, there's no better place to go. The teachings of Jim Collins and Patrick Lencioni, they pale in comparison to the teachings of Jesus. It's just not even close. It's really not. Now, Jesus didn't give us a how to be a good leader one-on-one textbook. And I'm not here to tell you that it's pointless to read these other books because they are great helps. But Jesus really is the best leader that ever walked the face of this planet. He is the transformational leader. We believe, as a staff and as a church, that Jesus can transform our lives from the inside out. We teach to transform. At the core of our being, the teachings of Jesus are what changed us. At some point in your life, the teachings of Jesus made a difference in your life. The true miracle in this passage is Jesus' ability to forgive sin. That is what it's about. The healing of the paralytic is a mere byproduct of the fact that Jesus has the power to transform your life from the inside out. He has the power to forgive you of your sins. The healing of the paralytic is just a way to show that. And throughout Scripture, Jesus uses parables, he uses different types of stories to bring us back to the core message, and that is that Jesus Christ loves you, he died for you, He rose three days later, and he forgives you of your sin if you're willing to let him transform you from the inside out. This morning, I believe without a shadow of a doubt that we will never see anything like this for the rest of our lives. Will you bow your head with me this morning? I want to challenge us on two fronts this morning. First off, I need you to reflect in your own life Has Jesus ever transformed you from the inside out? Has his ability to forgive you of your sins ever transformed you? That is the transformational teaching of Jesus, his power to forgive sin. Has he done that in your life this morning? Think about that. Reflect on that. Secondly, I want to ask the rest of us in here, when is the last time that the teachings of Jesus transformed your life? Once we become a follower of Jesus, we do not remain static. If we're remaining static, we might as well be going backwards. I want you to think about the last time that the teachings of Jesus transformed your life. And if you're having trouble coming up with an answer, what are you going to do about it? Jesus has the power to transform your life this morning. Do not miss the opportunity to let him do it.
Do not miss those opportunities throughout the week to let him transform your life. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, during this time of reflection, during this time of invitation, help us to cling to the moments that you have transformed our lives. Help us to cling to the times when you changed us. Help us to remember that the most important miracle you ever did was the transformation in our hearts through the forgiveness of sins. Speak to us now, Lord. Open our hearts. Open our ears. Help us to hear from you in this time. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.